Welcome to Eye to Eye, the podcast of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. My name is Sunil Mamtora, and I will be your host. In this latest episode, I spoke with Anthony Kawaja, a consultant ophthalmologist who works at the Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. We spoke about genetics and glaucoma. Thank you for joining me today. Your work on the genetics of glaucoma is really fascinating, and I've read some of your recent papers with a lot of interest. Could you tell the listeners about the work you've been doing to understand the genetics behind the development of primary open-angle glaucoma? So last year we put together, it was around 140,000 patients, and data on their intraocular pressure and also data on their genotype, their, their DNA code at certain markers, to see whether how we vary in our DNA code uh, is associated with intraocular pressure. And we found over 100 genetic loci that were significantly associated at a very high level of statistical significance. And these explain why we vary in intraocular pressure, uh, even within health. I mean, even within health, you know, but someone with a pressure of 10 or 20 might both be within the normal range, yet it's varied twofold. So we're starting to identify the genes that explain the, this difference which also sheds light on the molecular mechanisms that, that, under, that underlie why some people get high pressure and then glaucoma. Now, of course, you may say, well, okay, these genetic loci just explain variation in intraocular pressure. Are they relevant for disease? Well, in the second part of the study, we took those genetic loci into different studies and looked at whether they associate with glaucoma. And the striking finding was they really, almost all of them, showed association with glaucoma. The, the correlation of effects was, was remarkably linear. And so these genetic loci are important for glaucoma risk. And even more exciting is when we put them all together in, in one statistical model, a regression model, we could predict who had glaucoma with uh, an, an area under the ROC curve of 76%. Now that might not sound high compared to some other types of diagnostic tests but what this is saying is genetic markers we could measure in someone who's a baby even could predict when they what that's going to happen to their intraocular pressure and whether they get glaucoma or not as an adult with 76 percent accuracy which is really striking it's not going to be diagnostic but what it can do is on the basis of just the genetics you could identify who is going to be at higher risk and maybe screen those. So personalised screening or targeted screening. Sure, I mean, talking about associations, causality, genetic loci, it sort of reminds me of HLA-B27 in uveitis. Is that the right kind of thing? Uh, the HLA area in, in genetics is, is much more complex. Um, so this is the, the way to think of this is, you know, we... We are genetically identical across most of our genome, but we vary at some of the points. And it's these variations that mean some of us are tall, some of us are short, some of us have got brown eyes or blue eyes, etc. But some of these variations also predispose to uh, certain health conditions. And so it's, it's just identifying um, these ways in which we vary that, if you like, are predetermining what's going to happen to our health. And knowing that information means we can perhaps identify people at highest risk of losing vision from glaucoma earlier on so we can get the treatment in there earlier. Be that at a population level or be that hopefully in the future even in the clinic identifying which of your patients need more intensive treatment. 
So do the findings shed any light on the etiology and the reasons why these patients develop raised pressures? Absolutely. So one of the really striking findings, for example, um, for the intraocular pressure uh, work we did, was when you start to get lots of gene signals from lots of genes, you can look at whether the genes fall in certain biological pathways. And very, very significantly enriched in our results were pathways for angiogenesis. Now, at first I thought that's really surprising because, you know, I look at the trabecular meshwork, I don't see blood vessels there. Why would angiogenesis be important in intraocular pressure? But actually, when you look at the genes that are driving it, so that's VEGFC, angioprotein 1, angioprotein 2, you realise these are lymphangiogenesis factors. And actually, Schlem's canal very much behaves like a lymphatic vessel. And so what these factors are doing are affecting Schlem's canal and collector channels, and actually nothing to do with trabecular meshwork. And so while the old dogma is primary open angle glaucoma is a disease of the trabecular meshwork, actually the genetic findings support the fact that really just as important is stuff that happens after the trabecular meshwork. In parallel to the work we've been doing, they've made some discoveries on um, a, a new gene for paediatric glaucoma, which is uh, the tyrosine kinase receptor gene. And if um, children have a mutation in that gene, they basically don't develop a Schlem's canal and get really bad glaucoma at birth. Um, and what's happening then, the, the tyrosine kinase receptor is actually a receptor for the angioprotein 1 and 2. And so the variations in, this, in, the, in those genes that we're seeing responsible for adult glaucoma are kind of less severe. So a, a more common variation one of those genes might slightly affect the proteins, not to the same extent as a rare mutation that very badly affects the proteins, and are more uh, subtly affecting the outflow pathway, but after trabecular meshwork. I see. So in, in patients where you have pathology in Schlem's canal, yeah. due to the lymphatic drainage, you know, what is the ideal management of this? Yeah. So you would think if someone's got a problem there, you probably wouldn't bother putting in an eye stent. You probably wouldn't bother with SLT because that, these treatments target the trabecular meshwork. Now, at the moment, it's just a hypothesis, but I'm sure you're all aware of the LIGHT trial, which has just been published, where they compared laser to drops and, uh, in a randomized trial and followed up what happened to those patients. Well, we've already collected blood samples from those patients, and we're uh, hoping to genotype those patients. And we're going to test this hypothesis. Do the genetic variants in these key lymphangiogenic genes predict who's going to do well from SLT and who's going to do less well? And if that is proven to be the case, then we might be in a position where we can do a test to help us decide what treatment a patient would do best for, best with in, in the clinic. Or we might take data that's already available. For example, if a patient has done 23andMe, that data, they might already have that data on their smartphone. Okay. So are these gene loci data and information available on 23andMe? They are. So not in a, in a beautiful interface where you, you, you log on and you can say, tell me about my lymphangiogenic factors, but you can actually download your genetic data. Uh, the question is, can you interpret it? And, and most people wouldn't. I'd be able to because that's my research area. I have experience in it. So one thing we'd need to do um, is develop a clinical tool which could sit in front of that data, pull out the data it needs, and then just present you with a metric. 
And that might even be just something as simple as a scale from one to 10, or, or maybe even a traffic light thing like green, amber, uh, red. Um, so, we, so we need to develop that tool. And th that would be quite a simple thing to do. The, the question is, is what, what will the model be in the future? Because I guess we can't rely on our patients to go and, even though it's fairly affordable, get a 23andMe test to improve their care. Um, and we want to make this as accessible and as equitable as possible. So uh, I envisage a future actually where doing this genotyping test on every patient who has contact with the NHS is going to be of benefit for them because they do the whole genome it's not only going to tell help tell us which glaucoma treatment is best for them it will say whether they should go on a statin or a different lipid lowering yeah, of drug course, I mean, or so many multi-system benefits to these kind of testing exactly and my understanding is that you know this type of testing is also decreased in cost significantly over the last few years as well absolutely i mean so so now you can go to your high street and i think for 120 pounds you can you know, pick up the box from Superdrug and get the test yourself. Uh, if you wait till Christmas time, it's even cheaper. And if we're doing it in the context of a study, it's more around £50. If the government would decide to do something on a national level, I could see the cost being even half of that. So when you think of the cost of other things we do and other tests, and this could have so many benefits across a whole patient's lifetime in multiple different uh, medical areas, then I think that, 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 that could prove cost effective. Is that something that you recommend to your own patients to go and get their own genotype sequenced? I don't currently, no. Um, and it's the next stage of my research really, is, is, is really trying to, at the moment, the data sets where we've generated these, uh, these new genetic findings have very limited clinical information about the patients. We just know whether they have glaucoma or don't have glaucoma. Uh, and my aim now is to take these well clinically characterized cohorts. So the trials are a great example because these patients have been followed up so closely, they have lots of clinical data on them, and to get the genetic data on those same patients so you can then start to do those sorts of analyses because that kind of data are actually still quite limited globally. Sure. So going back to the 100 plus genetic yeah. associations that you've identified with glaucoma or you know, progression of glaucoma or conversion of OHD to glaucoma, have you identified any racial or demographic associations with those genes? So, th this, this is a really important point. When you're doing genetic analyses like these, you can't put in together people of different ethnicity. So let's say we did a study and we put white people and black people in it, and black people get more glaucoma then any genetic variant, variant that's just associated with being black would come up as being positive for glaucoma, even though it might have nothing to do with glaucoma. So the way we do these studies, we have to do them within uh, just certain types of ethnicities. And, and, and we do that on using genetic testing to work out. So, so all our results have been on people of European ancestry. Now we have looked at whether those results replicate, some of them replicate in other ethnicities like Asian ethnicities and in generally they really do um, uh, replicate so we see those same signals in, in Asian patients. Not so much for, for African descent uh, patients. Uh, there is some signal but it seems to be weaker and this might be because uh, as you know ge the, the genetic diversity is, is, is 
very broad amongst people of African ancestry and quite different to those of European ancestry. And this poses another challenge. Let's say, you know, we develop a test which means I can give you a better uh, treatment pathway for glaucoma. Um, is it, can we really ethically offer that to people if we can only offer it to people of a certain race? So in parallel to doing all of this work, we must really carry on uh, working for the genetic to make genetic discoveries in people of other races. And hopefully the clinical tools we develop will be applicable in all races so that we can give equitably improved and personalised care. I think that's really interesting because clearly there's a genetic basis to the development of glaucoma in our African patients. Yeah. But with the weaker signals that you've seen in that subgroup, potentially there's some yet undiscovered markers or loci that are associated with glaucoma in those patients? Absolutely. There may be some loci which really are more only evident in, in people of African ancestry. One of the strongest uh, genetic associations in European people uh, is in this uh, gene region called CDKN2B antisense 1. Not that you need to know that. Um, it's um, that variant, while it's quite common in European people, hardly any African people have that variant. So, and that's the protective variant. So the 20% of the population who have that protective variant in Europeans might be one of the reasons why Europeans get less glaucoma than, than uh, African people who, don't, who, who very rarely carry that protective genetic variant. So if you have a patient with a strong family history of glaucoma sitting in front of you, yeah. how does your management of that patient vary from another patient who's not aware of any strong family history? So if they're off an early onset as well, so let's say they got adult onset glaucoma in their 30s with a strong family history and a high intraocular pressure, that's a classic phenotype for one particular type of genetic primary open angle glaucoma and that's one, a POAG caused by mutations in the myosillin gene. Now that is where one mutation that's quite rare in an important gene is enough on its own to cause disease and that mutation if passed on to the offspring will cause uh, primary open angle glaucoma in, that, uh, in the offspring as well. Um, that is thought to be less than 5% of all of primary open angle glaucoma. But if you do identify somebody in that situation, it might be worth doing genetic testing and sequencing off the myosillin gene to see if there is a mutation. Then if there is, what you can then do is what's called cascade testing. And so for at-risk family members who haven't been diagnosed with glaucoma as yet, you can screen for that mutation and if they have it you know you need to see them regularly so that if they develop the disease you can treat it early because myosillin mutations can cause terribly aggressive glaucoma uh, or if they don't have it then you can reassure them that they only have the same risk as uh, people in the general population and they just need to see their local optometrist every one to two years. I, mean, I think that's really important in terms of justifying genetic screening as a cost-benefit analysis on one hand you're spending money to perform the test, but I think on the other hand, you're actually avoiding the need for unnecessary screening visits and treatment in patients who would otherwise have been regularly followed up simply due to their strong family history as well. Yeah, spot on. And there's another exciting potential benefit. We're not there yet, but 
who knows what's going to happen in the next five to ten years but they're already developing treatments targeting the molecular cause if you know it so when you have these rare mutations enough to cause a disease on their own you basically know the molecular mechanism to a certain degree of that glaucoma and with myocillin glaucoma you get these abnormally folded proteins damaging the trabecular meshwork and what they've shown in mice is you can edit the myocillin mutation using you might have heard of it the crispr cas9 system and you can effectively cure glaucoma in in mice with uh, with myocillin glaucoma and so we're probably at the stage where we might be able to start trialing these kind of treatments. So, it, so then if you identify somebody with a myocillin mutation, there might be a treatment that's specific for them that might even be curative. That's really interesting. I think going on back to the personalization of the medicine, it's really important, isn't it? Because if you've got a patient who you know has a myocillin gene defect causing glaucoma, you can more effectively target their treatment with maybe SLT, or cataract surgery. See, makes... see, see, I think though that I think that's your that that's a really good point, and it's understudied. Um, and I think a lot of us don't know, in, including myself. We don't routinely test adults uh, at present. That's something that that we want to do at our centre. Um, and we don't specifically know whether certain treatments like SLT will work better. Uh, but that's that's a really good good point so if if the disease is at the trabecular meshwork maybe these patients with fairly aggressive glaucoma might actually do really well with something as simple as an eye stent or, or SLT. You know personalization of treatment in glaucoma you know seems like a really important point throughout medicine ophthalmology we're trying our best to personalize our care for our patients yeah. but, you know thinking about conditions like high myopia which is associated with glaucoma inflammatory glaucomas uh, how you know, some of these conditions don't really have a genetic link or it's questionable you know in high myopia do you personalize your treatment of these patients as well so i think we we always must try and personalize our treatment so in some ways evidence-based medicine has really improved the way we treat patients but it has made us i think in some ways sometimes treat people on average it's like well on average if i give you a statin you're going to live longer but of course some people do worse on statins and some people do better on statins for in terms of you know uh, heart attacks or strokes um, and, and, and same with, with, with glaucoma we say well you've got glaucoma and the UK glaucoma treatment study tells us if we give you latanoprost you're less likely to get worse so so that's our basis for treating them but actually in the UK glaucoma treatment study three quarters of the placebo arm didn't get worse over two years. So actually, if you treat everyone, you might be over-treating some patients. And in the same way, people even who that were treated with latanoprost, 15% of them did progress. So they were under-treated. And so we might want to think about what can we what can we do right on the outset from seeing patients to help us better categorize them uh, and see who needs less treatment, more treatment, or different types of treatment. The high myopia thing's interesting because um, actually I think the jury's still out about whether it causes uh, glaucoma. Um, I mean, high myopia, myopia is fairly common, glaucoma is fairly common. Of course, we're going to get patients uh, with coexisting, with both conditions uh, coexisting. Um, where does the evidence come for that myopia causes glaucoma? Well, it's epidemiological evidence. The prevalence studies, 
I think are quite flawed because the more myopic a disc becomes, the more difficult it gets to interpret. And you might misdiagnose glaucoma in some of those patients. They, myopic patients can even get visual field defects that look like glaucoma that mm. aren't glaucoma. Yet when you look at the incident studies, so you look at where the baseline at myopia predicts the onset of glaucoma, it doesn't seem to. And when you look in our major trials, like the ocular hypertension treatment study, the advanced glaucoma intervention study, the UK glaucoma treatment study, the early manifest glaucoma treatment trial, in none of those studies is myopia a risk factor for the conversion or progression of glaucoma. Mm. So actually, it might just be an ascertainment bias. So I personally... I, yes, I do treat patients with high myopia differently. They might respond differently to surgery. Um, and, you, you, you know, you, you, I, I do try and alter, but, but, but whether, um, whether myopia actually causes glaucoma, I think, is uh, still controversial. So how do you treat myopia patients differently? So uh, I think when it comes to surgery and trabeculectomy, I think we, you're just that much more aware that their tissues... Um, their sclera might behave differently. So as you're constructing the flap and suturing it, you might be just that bit more careful. And the end point I'd normally have in terms of my sutures and, and being able to elicit flow with pressure behind the flap, um, I might be a little bit uh, more, uh, I might own more towards on the side, side of safety, put in an extra stitch or tighten the stitches a little bit more uh, and titrate a little bit more post-surgery to avoid hypotony. Sure. I mean, do you think there's any logic behind people saying that in increased axial lengths, there's thinning of the retinal nerve fiber layer, therefore neuroprotective agents in this group might be a benefit? So, uh, unfortunately, the association between length of the eye and retinal nerve fiber layer is, is, is heavily affected by magnification artifact. Um, so when the eye is longer, the, the scanning circle actually falls on a different distance from the optic disc. So the supposedly thinner retinal nerve fiber layer you're seeing in longer eyes is mainly artifact. When people have done correction for this using certain formulae, they actually find that there might be a slightly thicker retinal nerve fiber layer in longer eyes, not thinner. Uh, really hard area to study because you just can't get around this magnification artifact. So I know you've written in the past about the association with glaucoma and many medications. How does the fact that a patient's taking, for example, a calcium channel blocker affects your management of a patient? So, well, firstly, we, we, we do know that certain drugs, you know, unequivocally we know can predispose uh, to angle closure glaucoma and precipitate acute attacks of uh, primary angle closure. Uh, for example, anything that, that dilates the pupil, like, um, like tricyclic antidepressants through an anticholinergic effect. Um, but the, the research I've done has looked at primary open angle glaucoma. You know, so many of our patients are taking drugs for other conditions, be it blood pressure, cholesterol, uh, um, stuff for arthritis, uh, skin conditions. There's, you know, the, the, the list is endless. And do we really know what those medications, well, what are the effects they're having on uh, on, on your patient's glaucoma. And so we did a study looking at um, which drugs were associated with an increased chance of having glaucoma that required a procedure compared to uh, not having glaucoma but having had the eyes checked by an ophthalmologist. And we found that beta blockers were strongly protected against glaucoma, which we'd expect because they, they so profoundly lower intraocular pressure. But there were two surprising findings. 
One was that patients who take selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors seem to be at much reduced risk of having glaucoma, and patients on calcium channel blockers are much increased risk of glaucoma. Now these are still research findings in an observational study, so more work needs to be done. So at the moment that wouldn't change my clinical practice, but it's something I'm, I'm aware of. And if more work comes out, it, it'd be interesting to know why these drugs potentially have this effect. And, and maybe that would influence choice of medication for uh, glaucoma patients that have comorbidities. Sure. And just to summarise and just to finish, what would, you, what would be your take-home message for someone who's listening to this podcast who's got a patient in front of them who suspects that they may have a genetic association with their glaucoma? Okay. Well, there's a few important clinical pearls here. Firstly, any patient you diagnose with glaucoma, whether they have a family history or not, one of the most important things you can do is encourage them to tell their family members, their first-degree family members, uh, to get checked. Because... Because family history is an enrichment, uh, because now all those first degree family members of the person you've diagnosed have a family history of glaucoma and that should prompt them to be screened. And if that then allows them to be diagnosed earlier, that will save sight in the long term. So that's one important thing to do. The other thing to say is, um, you know, I find now I can answer some patient questions better than I could before. So when I first started training and patients asked me, but doctor, why is the pressure high in my eye? I didn't feel as though I had a good answer. Whereas now, with the number of discoveries we've made, we're getting to the point where we can say this really is very much a genetic condition. So the thing I say to them is, it's actually genetic. Now, it's not a simple thing where you've just inherited one genetic defect from one parent. This is actually a, what's called a complex thing where you've been at over a hundred different points on your genetic code, you've inherited different parts from your mum and dad, and it's that combination that has led to you developing high pressure and then glaucoma. Uh, and I think it's nice that we can now explain that to our patients, and we, and we feel as though we're getting closer to working out what's going on, what causes glaucoma. Thank you very much for joining us. I've really enjoyed recording that. No, thank you. And hopefully people will find it useful. Cheers, thank you. Well, that's the end of the episode and I hope you enjoyed it. As always, we'd love to hear from you with any feedback, suggestions, or if you want to participate in the show. Send an email to communications at rcops.ac.uk. We have some great content lined up for the coming weeks and months and can't wait to share it with you. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe or leave a review.